pointed out to us that uh, the title Spilling Their Guts may imply that this is about, you know, the sort of battlefield interviews that, you know, the hard-boiled news interviews. We're going to talk about some stuff that's applicable for those, but we're mostly going to talk about feature-type interviewing. So any of you who uh, thought, well, this is going to be really hard-boiled, you know, combative stuff, uh, we're not just going to do that. So um, as Johanna mentioned, um, when we started talking about this, the, the first thing we decided to do is uh, to pick the brains. When we wanted to talk about interviewing, we, wanted to, we first decided to pick the brains of some of the people whose work we both have admired the most uh, over the past few years listening to public radio. And um, here is some of the stuff that they uh, told us is important for them. I'm Susan Stanberg at NPR, and here is my best tip about interviewing. Listen. I'm Neil Conan. People always worry about thinking what the next question is going to be. You know, if you listen, whoever you're talking to is going to tell you what the next question is. Listen for contradictions, tension, jump-off and follow-up points. The best interviewer is the best listener. Listen well. My name's Scott Carrier. I'm an independent radio producer. When you're talking to somebody, it's important for you to try to believe that you are the same as they are, whether they're a very important, famous celebrity or politician or whether they're some street person. If you think that someone is much smarter, much more important than you, you're going to feel like you don't have a right to ask a question. Or if somebody is very much beneath you, then you will might think that it's not important, you know, who cares about what this person says. But if you consider yourself to be on the same level, you can ask anything, anything at all. This is Howard Burkus, and one of the things that I found really useful in conducting interviews is silence. People feel really intimidated by the lack of sound and talking. And if you're having difficulty getting somebody to say something meaningful, look at them with a lot of interest on your face, shake your head, and don't say anything. And chances are they'll fill that silence with something that you'll find useful. Hello, I'm Renee Montaigne. And you know, one thing that works for me in getting good tape is to go into an interview really prepared, I mean, really know what's going on, and then basically forget it. Play dumb if you have to, or be dumb. You have to be dumb enough to ask someone you're interviewing why. Uh, what do you mean? Even observe, I don't get it. If you have the audacity to be dumb, you have the chance of getting something valuable out of an interview. Or in the case of you don't need the audacity to be dumb, you just... <laughs> it just falls into place. So as a lot of the sessions have pointed out today, there's no one way to go about making radio and there's no one way to go about doing an interview. There's very few hard and fast rules, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in doing an interview. Perhaps the one is get good sound, have it sound good. But beyond that, there are not that many rules, just a lot of tools. And what we're going to talk about today is as many of these tools as we can. And I think the trick is to see which of the tools um, work with your personality, work with the style of interview and piece that you want to conduct, um, and then use them just sort of on a case-by-case -case basis depending on the situation, the kind of piece you're doing, who you're talking to, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're also going to play a lot of tape uh, that will 
speak to some of the points that we're going to make about do's and don'ts interview-wise and spend a little bit of time talking about the technical side. Uh, but before we do that, Hal's going to talk a little bit about some of the things to think about before you even leave your you know, home to do an interview. One of the problems with um, doing interviews or making radio in general, in general is you, you have to sort of think backwards and forward at the same time. And what I mean by that is you always have to look forward to and be listening for what's happening at the moment and go forward with time and with excitement and with just the way the world runs. And at the same time, you have to sort of think backwards in that you're, you're, trying, to, um, you're trying to anticipate what you're going to be doing. And I think one of the first things you need to ask yourself before you make any radio piece or any audio piece is how, how this interview is going to work in the piece. And if you can ask yourself that question, you can sort of work backwards and think uh, about the kinds of things that you're going to need to do. I'm a, I'm a folklorist, uh, and the first 25 years of my career, I did a certain kind of interview that, that had more to do with um, you know, making a document and studying things and, and making a, an archival record. And there was, there's some beauty to that. I think, uh, you know, we work in a very ephemeral medium in radio, and we don't value the record of our work nearly enough. Uh, I think that we could all benefit from thinking of what, this is my only soapbox uh, thing in the whole the interview workshop, but we could advocate that our, our interviews themselves are become part of a more permanent record. You know, we... we um, Take, we always over-interview when we go out and work. We always ask a lot more questions than are going to end up in our pieces, and we end up uh, logging and, uh, and transcribing everything, and it goes into a permanent record, which is uh, hopefully will be used in the future. I'm, I know a lot of radio pr producers go to archives to find wonderful voices from the past and feelings of the past, but we rarely um, contribute to that or make sure that we're going to be contributing to that over the long term. Um, radio, uh, as a folklorist, mostly what I did in the early interviews that I made, which were many, uh, is create a portrait of a person. Uh, we, uh, I did a lot of work to gain the knowledge about a subject or capture some wisdom about a subject. and. Often uh, I ask people to retell stories. And what I had to learn when I came to radio that there was another list that went along with interviewing that was more uh, along the lines of what it is to build a story. And um, I think one thing you can do in interview beyond sort of the document or the archival is to document the unfolding of a story. Uh, when we talked to Scott Carrier, he said something very interesting to us. Uh, we said, what is the first question you ask in an interview? And he said, you know, there is only one question, and it is, what are you doing? And I thought that was pretty interesting, because basically what he was saying is that he's always looking for the unfolding story. What are you doing? What's happening now? You know, how is life unfolding for you? Um, other things that we do as documentarians, uh, Taki alluded to, uh, we uh, sometimes use um, an interview as sort of a battleground or a, 
a, uh, a battle of wits. Uh, there's a chapter in uh, this NPR book that we had here momentar- a minute ago by Robert Siegel about the interview, and he doesn't like to have any eye contact. He likes to be in his, his own room talking to someone. He wants his library and people near him. He can turn off the mic and he can sort of get strategic and get people's advice, and, and he looks at it almost like a... a uh, you know, some kind of a match between people. And oftentimes when you're talking to famous and controversial people, that's uh, the kind of interviewing you do. Unfortun- well, fortunately for us, really, we never talk to anyone famous or <laughs> controversial. <laughs> so uh, we don't worry about that one too much. And, uh, and if you came to learn about that, I'm sorry, but that, that we don't know much about it. Um, the other thing an interview can do is is really provide you some emotional ammunition. You know, um, radio and audio is an an incredibly emotive medium. And uh, sometimes, you know, often we we transcribe everything, but what we're really listening for is emotion. And that has a lot to do with who you pick to talk to, too. The other thing that you can use an interview for that we use quite a bit is to diffuse point of view. And what we mean by that is oftentimes uh, you have a central character, a protagonist almost in a piece, or, and what we use interview to is to sort of diffuse that, to show different angles instead of just one angle, the, the first person. And um, we'll give you some examples a little later of probably the most extreme version of diffusing point of view, which is the box. A lot of you use that as the man on the street, you know, getting lots of different perspectives. So you ask a very simple question, and you have five people answer it, and you sprinkle that at one point, and then people say, ah, yes, well, it's not just, you know, our main character's point of view, but here's what, you know, other people around think. But there's lots of ways to um, diffuse point of view. In, in the preparation for an interview, um, there's a tension. There's no one right way to prepare. Uh, and, and I've sort of thought of this as the tension between research and search. Uh, we, you know, personally, when we go out and do a story, we do quite a bit of research, and we have an idea of what the story is going to be when we go into an interview. But we always want to be able to throw that out in a moment's notice when we hear something else that's going on. We don't want to be uh, stuck with our research because sometimes that can just um, really kill an interview. I've worked a lot with cowboys, and uh, and they told me uh, that many times, or most of the time, documentary crews would come out once or twice a year to this cowboy crew, and they already knew exactly what story they wanted to uh, document. These guys, these guys' lives were going on. They were doing very interesting things, and yet you know, there was just sort of this one story over and over again that people came with. And that happens way, 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 way too much. Um, You need to, you know, sort of determine beforehand what kind of characters. You need, you know, a main character. You know, you might decide that you want experts. Uh, You might want, like the Vox, you might want the bystanders. You want a variety of voices. you know, we talked a little bit this morning about how musical radio is, and, and really think of the voices 
Um, nothing I, is more disconcerting when you have a lot of people that sort of have the same kind of a voice and they have the same kind of language in a piece. It's just sort, sort of hard and, uh, and it's not very musical. I think of uh, David Isay's piece from, the, um, from a Skid Row in New York where he had a, a fellow with uh, an electronic voice a box who was saying these just incredible emotional things in a very sort of robot-like way, and just it was incredible to hear the variety of voice there. Um, you know, we always go out with a list of questions, but uh, I never look at it once I start interviewing. At the very end, oftentimes I say, well, let me see what I, if I covered everything, and I look at them and I say, well, that doesn't look at all familiar, what, we, what we've been talking about. And then oftentimes I'll look to Taki, who's off, uh, you know, with the microphone and doing the technical stuff, and I'll say, do you have any questions? Um, you know, it's always good to just try to cover your bases when you're out there, because it's really hard to recreate a scene. Um, you know, interviews are interesting when they can convince and convincingly unfold time, and... Uh, Another thing that interviews are very interesting for is documenting characters who uh, at the beginning of the story are one thing and by the end they've made some kind of uh, big change. It's re really the basis of, the, um, of, of dramatic film. Is, in fact, the story is defined by characters who make an irrevocable change between the beginning and the end. I mean, story is defined in classic drama by that. If you can do that in documentary, you know, it's really uh, often a winner for you. Another thing uh, that we want to do is capture real emotion and reveal truth. Um, the main thing you want to do in an interview is get deeper. And that's tough. Uh, uh, these days, people are quite... Um, fearful of being interviewed because they've seen how much exploitation there is out there. And they know a lot more, now that we're a media-driven world, about exploitation. And um, one thing that I like about the Third Coast Audio Festival is I think we're building or exploring some new ethics here in radio. Um, Errol Morris is one of my favorite documentary makers. He made a film in 1981 called Vernon, Florida. And, you know, 25 years later, uh, some journalists went down to Vernon, Florida, and, and people in that town are still really upset about how their town was portrayed by Morris. And when they went back and talked to Morris about that, he, about the, uh, the way he only went for the sort of the weird, strange characters in their town, he said, the documentary has no responsibility to be an advertisement for your characters. And, you know, even though I agree that, agree that we don't have uh, a responsibility to be an advertisement to your char the character, I think that we do get deeper by almost collaborating on the hard questions. And where I saw that most evidence w evident was at the awards ceremony last year here where several of the winners brought up the main people in their pieces who collaborated with them to, to go deeper into a story. And I think that's a, a wonderful model that we're all trying to aspire to. Um, now we're going to get to the a little bit more mundane things. What do you have to think about before you begin? 
You know, is your equipment ready? Do you feel comfortable with your equipment? Really practice with your equipment. Make sure you have the right gear. We'll talk a little bit about that later. It's wonderful if your equipment really becomes invisible. Uh, to us, that's um, the way to get to it. Other people, Studs Terkel, for instance, loves to fumble around with his tape recorder and get people involved, and, they, and he says, I can't see this, what's that button? And, and he sort of gains empathy by you know, being a klutz with his instrument, I'm told. Um, you need to decide beforehand, are you going to be part of the interview? Is your voice probably going to end up or not end up in the piece? And um, if so, are you going to be loud and clear on mic, or are you going to be sort of off mic? I mean, both things are appropriate. Uh, you know, you need to think in an interview what your ambient sound is going to be like. Do you want to do it in a, a, a hollow room? Do you want to do it where there's a train going by? You know, sometimes it can be very effective to have things going on in the background, but it's also much more uh, risky as well. Um, then you need to sort of think about how you're going to begin an interview. I like to start with very mundane things. You know, I look on the table and at someone's house and I say, oh, are those your kids, you know? Um, how many kids do you have? Do you have any grandkids? You know, I, I start with things that I know I'm not going to use, but it, it sort of breaks the ice. Another way, thing I like to do is sort of exchange stories. If, if you've told a story and somebody's told a story back, it's a really wonderful way to get to know another person. Um, then there's the other way of uh, boldly catching someone off guard by asking a really sort of risky question off the top. And sometimes that works, and oftentimes it, it is very risky. So those are some of the things uh, to get you going. The next uh, stage is the encounter. Yeah, and it just uh, one of the things, I mean, the first impression that you're going to make is even before you began the interview, when you've shown up, when you've introduced yourself, uh, when you've told them who you are and just sort of met them. And it's really important to make a good first impression. Um, Scott Carey, another thing he told me is that, you know, one thing that he really had to get over was just nervousness at the beginning because when you as the interviewer are, are nervous, you know, you're sort of projecting that on the other person. They're wondering, does this guy know what he's doing or not know what he's doing? And, I mean, you, the communicate, you haven't even asked the question and already there's a, a dialogue working against you in a way. And um, it's also important before you start talking just to kind of set yourself up in a way that will work for you. Um, you need to be close, you need to mic people, we'll talk more about micing later, but you need to be close enough, obviously, to mic people. Sometimes that means standing next to each other. Um, it's important to have eye contact with the person that you're talking to and to be in a position where you can mic them closely and keep an eye on your equipment to make sure that you're rolling and all that kind of stuff. If you're sitting down, uh, one thing that, that uh, I've seen happen a couple of times, two people sit down uh, across from each other and because one person's sitting in one kind of chair and the other person's sitting in an easy chair, one, you know, the interviewer is like looming over the person who's like a foot lower or vice versa. It's, it sounds really silly, but just having your eyes uh, at a level that's pretty close, you know, to each other is really important. I have to slink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let's let's hear some tape. The first uh, piece that we're going to play for you is by one of our favorite producers. Her name is Mary Beth Kirshner, and uh, this piece is called um, "The Graying of the Convent." 
It's a half-hour documentary. It aired on uh, Soundprint several years ago. And uh, she visited a convent here in Chicago. Um, the cynicals of North America is what they're called. And the thing that I like about this interview is how she used her own voice in asking questions to achieve a level of intimacy that just drew the other person in. And, and just there's, there's silence there, which is so pregnant but so powerful. So let's just play this for you here. It was a misnomer to call us semi-cloistered. It really meant that we didn't go out to see people. They came to us. The world came to us. We knew more about what was going on than the sisters who were teaching in the schools because we were hearing everything. You name it, we heard it. It was pretty clear that Sister Dugan had heard it all. One of my fondest memories of my week in the convent is having dinner alone with her. I offered to go out to one of the gourmet food shops in the neighborhood and bring back some food, anything she wanted. She said anything would be fine, just bring some Italian bread and a good red wine. My tape recorder was off for most of the conversation, where we talked about celibacy, lesbianism. It was clear that nothing was too bold to ask. How would you compare your experience to a priestly experience? Are the motivations any different? motivations are the same and I do the same kind of work that priests do but better and uh, the priests have a much freer existence they would go let's say and give a weekend retreat let's say come to our house they would go home after being here and maybe have two or three days off we keep right on working. We have to. We have to maintain ourselves. Now the diocesan priests can have a condo downtown, a house in Florida, because they don't have a vow of poverty. And they have it soft. Parishioners give them cars. Do you ever go into a rectory and see their liquor closet? Not uh, two dollar liquor. Sheba's. No. Black label. <laughs> People might be surprised to find out that you were a Catholic nun. Right. I'm a woman. First. I'm a human. Second. The two go together. And then I'm a Christian. Do you think many sisters would say that? No. That's what I'm teaching. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. One thing that Mary Beth does is she's just got this ability to sort of get talk softer. And, and every time she talks softer, it goes deeper. And uh, it's really interesting to, to hear her interviews that way. Uh, the next interview is uh, the uh, interview that I made with, I was trying to interview a 14-year-old boy in Hawaii who was learning ukulele from a master ukulele player, Kindy Sprout. And every time we get, get together with Josh, you know, he'd just sort of clam up as 14-year-olds do. And um, in this case, we put him together with Kindy because we knew that 
in an interview situ situation, a three-way interview, we felt like maybe Kendi could help draw him out and they could play off of each other. You know, when you make uh, the depend, you know, you, the most in in intimate interviews are, of course, two people. But sometimes, you know, you, you have to really go uh, to three or four people. And sometimes you let other people interview. You know, they get into the act of interviewing, too. He's like the father figure in my life. He's like, he taught me how to ride horse and all kinds of Hawaiian stuff. All the foods that I think are weird, he teaches me to eat them, <laughs> and they're really good, too. One time he gave me cow heart stew. <laughs> it's pretty neat. Yeah, he's just been there and supported me a lot. Kimba uses the term sticky brain to describe the kind of person who remembers all the details. Even though Josh doesn't have an ounce of Hawaiian blood in him, Kindy has found a willing sticky brain to pass on a world of lore and history. Kindy grew up with a traditional respect for his elders and the knowledge they could impart. Now in his late 60s, he's an elder himself, passing on knowledge in the traditional way by demonstration. But with all there is to learn, there's still plenty of room for play. Josh offers us a showstopper, Jazzy G. That's practically the only song you can play behind my head. <laughs> you can play that one behind your head? Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. After a few tunes, we start talking about all sorts of things Hawaiian. I'm curious about the island word Aloha. It's emblazoned on everything from beach bags to jumbo jets. It's a real powerful word, even though they use it a lot. The direct translation is, um, may you have everlasting breath. And that's why, when they came up and said aloha, they did their honey, which is nose to nose things, so they could breathe in each other's breaths. So when you came to someone, you put your nose against them? Kind of like a Hawaiian kiss. Exchange of breath. Wow. So, you don't take aloha very lightly? No. Aloha is a very serious word. And if you don't mean it, don't say it. See, alo is a deity. Like a call, a forward call to deity, alo. But ha is the breath of life. And the breath of life starts way down in that comes out. Actually, the translation of Hawaii is ha vai the breath of life and the water of life of E. That's the great creator to the Hawaiians. Josh catches Kindy smiling at him proudly. But it's not just Kindy who's proud. Josh finds the attention embarrassing as any 14-year-old would, yet the respect is reciprocal. Yeah, when we have Hawaiian studies, I'm usually like the top student and stuff. Because <laughs> right here, information source. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the, the pieces that we've played so far are sort of like your classic interview style in that they're sit-down interviews. The, th the theory being that if you can be in a relatively quiet place with the one or the two people that you're going to talk to, that ultimately you'll have a lot more control over how you produce the piece. And while that may be true in a lot of cases, sometimes being in, a, in an environment that's out of control uh, can really add a lot of energy to your piece. We're going to play a very different um, 
piece right now that was done by Danny Zwerdling, a reporter uh, at NPR, and actually I was the producer of the show at the time. We sent him to Rwanda, and uh, this was actually a couple of years after the massacres there. And um, this piece is about a group of refugees who had left their village during the massacres and had spent the last year or so in Zaire in a refugee camp. And they had made the decision to go back to their burned out villages and try and rebuild their lives. So Danny joined them on this trek back to their villages, you know, across hundreds of miles. And they were transported, 60 of them in this group, in the back of a cattle truck, which, you know, was just like a big dump truck type of thing. So here's the interview that he did. This truck is going too fast, and it's when we, it goes around curves, we all are thrown against the side. And the truck keeps trying to dodge people walking along the side of the road, bicycles carrying more refugees' belongings. The thing that I've been holding on to, a rubber strap has just slipped, and now I have nothing to hold on to on this truck. Is this man with a family or not? It's the same family. What was life like in the camp in Zaire? Now, we were told, the matriarch of the family told us that one of her daughters died. Was that your wife? No. Did you see, were there other people that you knew who died in the relief camp? Many, a lot of them. <laughs> They're laughing. Why are you laughing? <laughs> because that's a stupid question? No, it isn't a stupid question. <laughs> I myself have seen all those people dying and they put them, they put the, cor the corpse on the road, now, inside the road. Then everyone was afraid. And there is a saying here in Kenya, Rwanda, when something is really bad, you laugh. And when something is really good, you laugh. <laughs> So what I'm, what I'm wondering is not whether you saw people die, I'm wondering whether you actually knew personally many people who died, or anybody who died. A lot of my relatives died there. Three of my cousins, my aunt, my wife's sister, with his children. Did they all die of disease? Yeah, they all died of cholera. Sorry. Is this one of the reasons your family has decided to leave now, the refugee camps, because so many of you were dying there? This is one of the reasons we decided to go back, but there is also the reason of there is, now it's the rainy season and we didn't have any anything to cover us, so we decided to go back home. One thing that I, I really like about this piece is it's 22 minutes long and there is no narration. The entire piece is an interview. It's an interview and a stand-up, basically a play-by-play -play of what's going on. He did absolutely no recording or descript description uh, in the piece after he got back. It's just raw tape cut down. And when I asked him uh, a few weeks ago what part of the piece stuck out in his mind the most, he 
directed me to this one, which, you know, it's when they started laughing. And at the moment that it happened, it was kind of an awkward moment for him. He didn't quite, it, it kind of threw him off guard. And, and even when they, after they explained, you know, about the laughter, and you laugh at something that's both bad and good, you know, things that are both bad and good, um, it was awkward at the time, but in hindsight, that their ability to laugh for him said more about their prospects for putting their lives together than the stuff that they said when he when they were actually answering that question. So it's 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 uh, it's an interesting piece because they it's they're answering the question by not directly answering it in a way. So it's another way that the interview just drew something out and got to a deeper level than just words would have. Yeah, so far we've, we've, uh, most, we've actually just heard the produced piece. But, you know, when, when you're working um, on an interview, you know, you have two things going on. It's this thing that comes out of your mouth and out of your brain. And then you have this other, all these voices going on that are, that are continually asking, you know, am I getting the right information? Am I, uh, have I made this per person feel comfortable enough? Uh, are they answering the question? Are they avoiding it? Am I getting to some kind of deeper truth? Are we clicking? You know, those kinds of things. And we did a little experiment. Um, I uh, made an interview once, uh, a piece about a, uh, a brothel in near Wells, Nevada, or in Wells, Nevada, called uh, Donna's Ranch. And this is a place where uh, prostitutes drum up business by getting on the CB radio and uh, talking to truckers as they go past. And um, I, we have a ranch that's not too far away, so uh, you know I'd known about this and heard it before. But um, I'd got clearance from the owner and the madam of the uh, from the brothel to record this piece, and I wanted to uh, interview a trucker who was coming to. This was a travel piece for Savvy Traveler. <laughs> and um, they, they almost lost a couple of stations in the Bible build over this baby. But um, I was really, I was sort of nervous, you know. And finally on Easter Sunday, uh, the madam called me and she says, we've got, you know, the right guy coming in tonight. You ought to come in. And we're having an Easter dinner here at the brothel. <laughs> so I show up and I... Uh, interview uh, this prostitute named Cherry Rose and then um, and uh, you know it's a absolutely totally different than what I had thought it was going to be but we're going to play you some raw tape of raw in one sense of the word of, um, of me with the trucker in his truck driving into Wells Nevada and what you're going to also hear is uh, what's going through my brain Okay, get in Colin's truck. Now, the first thing I'm going to ask is a non-threatening question, just something to make an even playing field out of this interview. So, what got you into trucking? <laughs> I just always had an interest in it, and then I got my license, but... Nobody would hire me. I don't think I'm going to hold out your feet, but I don't think I'm quite there yet. I don't know. Family? Did you come from a trucking family? <laughs> no, my dad drove a fuel truck in the military for a little bit, but 
Nobody in our family was really in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was asking my neighbors. You got a big rig to handle, don't you? What am I doing? Yeah, it's about oh, 65 feet long. How many gears does this thing have? I can't believe I just asked that. This one has 13. The fuel truck I used to drive had 18. Oh, what are we doing? I've got to ask him about Bellinger Ranch. Okay, we're getting closer now. So, Colm, tell me about your, uh, when you come near Wells, what do you do? I could have asked that one a little more clearly. Uh, how do you mean, what do I do? I mean, what is, <laughs> just sort of outline... Do you get on the CB and sort of talk with the gals, or do you just come here for the night, or? Oh, I come down here for the night and get my fuel and... Okay, I've got a job in right now, I'm replace that. So what brings you to Donna's? Cherry Rose. She's beautiful, isn't she? Yes, that's, that's the one reason I stopped. I come by here for about a year, kept hearing him on the radio, and then finally one day I decided to stop. And I've been stopping ever since. You know, I think it's time now for me to divulge a little bit of myself and divulge a little empathy where the stop. It's a lot different than I expected it to be. Is that Was that true for you when you came here? I didn't know what to expect. I had no clue whatsoever. Well, I'm like soulless. Walk in there and you're very nervous. You don't know what to expect. But I found a, I found a put you at ease right away. Do you like driving at night? I prefer driving at night. Oh my God, what am I doing? You're riding on the track. You see a lot of, well, stupid maneuvers out here by truck drivers as well as... Okay, I've got to get back to the subject. Oh uh, God, I'm going to So, does, um, I mean, you, now, you're, the girl that you, is Cherry, what's her last name? Oh, she, uh, Cherry Rose. Cherry Rose. She seems like a sweet person. Does it ever frustrate you that you can't be with her all the time? Yeah, it's hard sometimes. She's the only, she's the only working girl I've ever been with, and it's, well, it's how I get attached to her. It's hard sometimes because you can't be with her all the time. It's getting pretty personal. It's one of those things you have to live with. You're on the road and she's doing her thing and you're doing yours, so. So you get to visit with her, which is really nice, huh? Yep. She doesn't always have a lot of time, but you accept that. There's a financial transaction here. Let's talk about that. Is Donna's a big expense? Yeah, it can get out of hand if you're not careful, so. You have to control yourself. Now it looks like we'll be picking them up across this hill. Okay, I've got to quiet down to hear the radio. Get the mic on up there. Hot dotted out there, drivers over here at Dollar Fetch tonight. We have got a bunch of hot, hot, wet round ladies. So come on in, relax. Everything is very reasonable over here at Dollar Fetch. Okay, thanks. Is it reasonable, do you think? I think I'll call it. Well, a lot of people figure it's overpriced, but look at it this way. Take a girl on a date, movie, dinner. Maybe it's a crude way of looking at it, but you can't be guaranteed of getting any. You spend a hundred bucks on a meal and theater and everything else. Here, 
you spend the same amount of money, and if that's what you're looking for, you're guaranteed to getting it. So you're still going to pay for it, no matter how you go about it. So world famous Donna's Ranch, where the Wild West still lives. <laughs> it definitely does live there. We learned from that experience. Hal learned from that experience. I mean, it's, there's, there are a lot of do's and don'ts right in that little thing. I mean, it's important to keep your questions conversational but focused. And if they don't come out right the first time, you know, keep asking the same question. Rephrase it. Don't be afraid to just keep going after the same thing if, if either the person hasn't gotten it or you just haven't been able to, you know, spit it out properly. Uh, look for opportunities for a follow-up question. I mean, the, the, the thing about it being reasonable, I mean, that led to a really good answer. That wasn't, you know, it was just something that was prompted by, by what he heard on the radio. So the next piece that we're going to play for you is um, actually three, three clips that are from two different pieces by Scott Carrier. I don't know if you're all familiar with uh, Scott Carrier's work. He... His first piece was uh, in the early 80s, and he's from Salt Lake City, where we're both from. He hitchhiked across the country, took a tape recorder with him, had never done radio before, and just interviewed people along the way. And he showed up at NPR, and he says, I've got, like, you know, 100 miles of tape, and would someone here be interested in helping me make something out of it? So it turned into one piece, it turned into another, uh, and a whole bunch. And the thing that I really liked about Scott's um, work was that he wanted to talk to the people that most of the rest of us ignored. Um, he's the guy that said in the, in the opening montage, you know, put yourself on the same level. Uh, and, and that's exactly what he does in the piece. So let me just play you these three clips and uh, we can talk about them. Oh, the first is from that first hitchhiking trip and the, the last clip is from a piece about Ocean City in, in, in Maryland. Texas is a state that almost connects California to Florida. I'm standing on an on-ramp to Interstate 10 on the eastern side of the West Texas town of El Paso. A skinny old guy comes limping up the on-ramp wearing a new wool sport jacket and a cowboy string tie. What are you doing out here on the road? Well, I was just walking. I'm down here visiting from Portland. I got off and I'm just walking around visiting. I'm a retired government worker. Yeah, how old are you? 63, and I'm a Christian. I'm what they call born again. I've accepted Christ as my personal Savior. Do you read your Bible? No. Well, you well, wait a minute, buddy. I asked one guy, can you prove the Bible isn't true? And he said, everything in that Bible is coming to pass. See, I'll tell you, no, there won't be an atomic war until the Battle of Armageddon Gaden, after the millennium, see. See, the war is going to be in the Middle East. Russia's getting low on oil, see. And that's why they're moving in. Russia's out of oil, see. And the next war is going to be in the Middle East, see. See. And if El Salvador falls, Mexico's next, see. So it isn't the El Salvador troops is killing, it's all them stinking liberals. We got too many liberals. Reagan is still a liberal Democrat. He's taking orders. Reagan, a liberal Democrat? 
Buddy, if he's a conservative, I'd hate to see a liberal. Of course, if we give the country to Kennedy, Mondale, and Crancy, he'd give the country to Russia. <laughs> sure! He, you see, the trouble is they're socialistic. This nation is turning socialistic, and it's bad. I'm tired of Texas. I'm thinking I'd be grateful just to get out of the state tonight when a guy in a Subaru Brat stops and promises me a ride to wherever I want to go if I just hurry up and get in the car. He's leaving Mount Pleasant for good, he says. He's got a terminally ill wife and a stack of medical bills at home he doesn't want to look at anymore. There's no sense in no man killing himself worrying about a family or something. They put himself in there. Why do you think more men have heart attacks if they are young age than women? They worried themselves to death trying to take care of the damn women and the kids. They worked yourself to death. That's why you left. That's why I'm looking at you. <laughs> I'm more happy. You don't you don't realize, you don't know me. I'm more happy right now. You and I are driving down this road out bending gears. <laughs> this is God's truth. I'm more relaxed. I'm not tensed up. I'm not fussed with nobody. I'm just having a ball. Use my old lady for example. She expects too much out of me. She dumps everything on me. She don't try and help me make ends meet or nothing. All she does is expect me to do it all. I have to do everything. And there's a limit to what anybody can do. Everybody has a limit. You can push his own body so far, you better stop and think. By God, I'm killing myself. And you will. You're damn sure do it at an early age. If you push that body, it's like a car. If you don't take care of it, it's going to break down on you. Yeah, it will. You'll wind up with a damn ulcer or, or a heart attack or, or something. Just from worrying, trying to please other people. The hell with them. Pinch yourself. <laughs> That's what I feel about it now. The hell with them. I ain't going to try and please nobody but me. I uh, come down here for every summer. What do you do? Uh, oh, I seem like Elvis and all that. Yeah? They made a lot of... Um, a uh, paper up by me because I sing like Elvis and all that. And I got about uh, 10,000 fans all over the place. What's your name? Huh? What's your name? What? What's your name? What, my name? Norman? It's a matter of time. It's a matter of time before I go back there. A matter of time. why he's got 10,000 fans. Um, you know, I talked to you a little bit about diffusing the point of view. And one of, uh, and I mentioned the Vox, you know, where you ask a very simple question that's going to be answered really quickly. We were doing a piece, uh, we went out to do a story about um, uh, a 70-plus-year-old man who was trying to uh, break a world speed record at Bonneville Salt Flats. And we thought that Bonneville Salt Flats was going to be all about, you know, these real high-tech racing teams, and, you know, it was basically what we'd seen on television. But when we showed up out there, what we found it really was was this 
uh, grouping of people who all bring their cars out there and their garage mechanics, and you know they've they've adapted a coffee can into a new kind of air cleaner, and we wanted to get a sense of just the diversity of the kinds of people and the cars that came to Bonneville Salt Flats. So we did this brief little 31-second piece in the story that I was telling you about, and it sort of made that point very cleanly. And all we did was ask them one question, what are you driving? It's a 53 Studebaker Peak with a 385 Chevrolet in it. Puts that 86 Firebird Trans Am. 1927 Model T, um, the modified road. Soon to be the world's fastest bar stool. I think it's going to run about 30 miles an hour. It has a Chinook helicopter engine in it. It uh, will produce about 3,800 horsepower. Wow. How fast do you want it to go? 500 miles an hour, I would say. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, you know, just quick little bits like that. Also, this device can have strong emotional impact. The next piece is from a piece that we did at Wounded Knee uh, with a family, the Littlefinger family, who had, uh, they were the descendants of Chief Bigfoot, and they had gone to Massachusetts to a small museum to reclaim the hair of their ancestors, who had, which had been on display for over a hundred years. Uh, they took it back to South Dakota and invited us to document the, um, the event. Uh, and there were some things that we couldn't be part of, but we were able to ask the impressions of a, a group of people as they came out of a teepee after viewing this hair for the first time in a hundred years, all descendants. And if it's not clear, the, the hair was taken as a war trophy, you know, from the battlefield off the dead body and then sold to a museum, which displayed it for a good part of a hundred years. So. It's about uh, 10 in the evening. We've had supper. Lightning is flashing across the sky, lighting these three teepees. Children are playing. When the family went in to see that lock of hair for the first time, a big storm came up and as they came out, everyone was weeping. It was real emotional for me. And it was like um, being in the presence of someone that we knew. I had a real sad feeling. I feel like an Indian. Our great chiefs are still alive in the spirits. When I touched it, it felt alive. Now I don't care. I'm married to a physician. I don't care what any doctor, scientist, anybody tells me. When I touched that hair, it felt warm. It felt alive. All these years, my experiences feel pretty heavy. But today, I feel like, you know, real light. You know? And that's the way it's going to be from now on. My people our people, we're going to feel relief. Uh, we're going to play a couple of uh, more pieces, and then what we're going to do is a very brief uh, little section on technical stuff. Uh, technical stuff is hard to teach because you forget it immediately. So we gave you a handout for that. Uh, but this first piece is an interview, sort of an infamous interview, uh, with Gene Simmons and Terry Gross from last year. You've heard about it? 
and uh, we'll just play you a little bit of it. But what happens in this uh, interview is Terry Gross, uh, Gene Simmons uh, from KISS has written a book, and she's going to ask him about makeup, and he basically wants to insult her. And, uh, you know, in the course of all of it, Terry Gross, who's a great interviewer, um, you know, keeps her cool. Some interesting things are done, and in the end, the message is, you know, even if it, it can be very uncomfortable, but you may still get some great tape. The band has been around 30 years. We're right behind the Beatles in the number of gold records by any groups in history. Somebody likes us. Women and their sisters and their moms seem to want to express their adoration and or fan worship, or perhaps they want to see if my oral appendage actually does have a spin and dry cycle and whether or not it has the ability to actually whip up a good froth. Ladies, I'm here to tell you it does. So for whatever reason they deem me worthy of their companionship, I was more than glad to oblige. And so almost 30 years ago, I started taking photos, Polaroids. And I still have them to this day. And so when the book was being written, Crown Publishers, who published my book, wanted to know, you know, you can't just say I did this and I did that. You've got to give specifics. So I sat down and started counting. One, two, and so on. And arrived at around 4,600 and change. Mm -hmm. Are you interested in music or is the goal of being in a rock band to have sex a lot? I believe in my heart that anybody who gets up there and says what they're doing is art, is on crack, and is delusional, and that in point of fact what they really, their modus operandi initially, perhaps it changed when they started to question their sexuality, but clearly initially it was to get laid and make lots of money. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. The reason we all wanted to pick up instruments initially, you know, publicly anyway, I will grant you there are those people who really love music and simply want to do it as a private pleasure. Uh, the jury is out. I have no comment. But as soon as you get up publicly and want other people to hear it, it seems odd that we really get off on the notion that the opposite sex, the fairer sex, that's you, like what we do. And perhaps, if we do it really well, you'll think, gee, he's not only talented and bright, but he's kind of cute, too. That's what we're hoping for, against all odds. And in music, it's the great aphrodisiac that says that even though I'm short, fat, ugly, bald, and I'm hung like a second grader, if I'm in a rock band, I've got a better-than-average chance of betting you down than if I was a dentist. I didn't make those rules. I come from Israel. I'm, I'm simply a student at your feet. This is what I've noticed. Are you interested in music Don't you love this interview? Tell me the truth. Well, I think it's kind of a drag, because you're making speeches, and you're being intentionally obnoxious. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm being a man. Uh, that's what I mean. You're being intentionally obnoxious by defining everything that you're saying as being a man. Well, I can't. I know talk. better. I know all men. No, 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 no. No, I always the way that you're no. Speaking. Um, you're wrong. I always defined it as for me. I kept doing that over and over again. What bothers you is you're finally hearing a man tell the truth, instead of you're the only one I'll ever live with, and you're the. He's lying. And I refuse to play that game. I refuse to stand up in front of a rabbi and my friends and the woman I love, who I will tell you I can love with all my heart and promise that she's going to be the only one I will ever have until the day I die. That's a lie. 
Do, do you like the movie Spinal Tap? And do you think that that Spinal Tap um, has any comment on uh, on on? on Rock and roll, like sure. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, sure. I think it's all funny. I mean, when you really think about it, I'm not delusional enough to think that what I do is important to life as we know it on this planet. No, but neither is what you do. You know, the world can get a, can get along very well without us. Farmers are more important teachers and firemen and so on, because if they're not around, it really affects us. Your job and my job, whether you wear less makeup and I wear more makeup, is to entertain people. And I'm here to tell you, I'm very entertaining. I don't know about you, but this is NPR. He's a piece of work. Uh, but he speaks to the issue of, you know, sometimes you're talking to people who are used to being interviewed a lot, you know, people ask them the same questions, and it really is, a, you know, it's important to try and figure out a way, I don't know that she could have done anything in, in this case, but for folks like that, I think it's really important to, to figure out a clever way to appeal to them. Do something that to them will be refreshing, and that will stand out um, uh, from all the other interviews that they've done. And a really good example is uh, this next piece that was done by Lynn Neary with David Byrne uh, of the Talking Heads. And this was when the movie Stop Making Sense came out. And, um, you know, the guy was sort of a star, an up-and-coming star. Everyone was talking to him. So she really wanted to figure out a different approach to beginning this interview. And this is what they did. My name is David Byrne. And with me here is Lynn Neary, host of All Things Considered. We're here to talk about the new Talking Heads movie, Stop Making Sense. Now, both Lynn and I have seen the film several times. Uh, do you have any questions before we begin? Well, David, I do have one question. At some one point in the movie, you come out and you're wearing an enormous suit. And I just wanted to know, why the big suit? I, I have a hard time answering that one. But let me ask you some questions. <laughs> what didn't you like about this movie? What didn't I like? Um, or name a section that you didn't like. Um, Let's start from the other, other side then. Did some of your friends like this movie and some of them not like it? Or did they all like it? Or are some of them not sure? No, uh, everybody I know who's seen it liked it a lot. I think um, the thing they liked about it was the way it sort of progressed and went from a small, from just you to a much larger kind of scene. Would you say it almost had a dramatic structure? Yes, I would. Did you intend that? Um, it was pointed out to me afterwards that there was almost like a psychological development going on at the same time, as if I was this character who was fairly angst-ridden and uh, apprehensive about the world at large, and who sort of uh, uh, finds some sort of salvation through uh, music and the, the communal activity with the other musicians. In that sense, it's like a little, little story with a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't see it that way originally. I didn't notice that. How did you, well, how did you 
envision it? What was your idea about it? My idea was that I wanted to reveal how everything was done. I wanted to show how the music is put together and how the stage set, for want of a better word, is, is built, and how the lighting is done. So I wanted to reveal that, show the technicians and show the wiring and show everything, as if to say, see, there's, there's nothing special about this. It's, this is how it's done. It's very plain, and my hope would be that that it would still have the the power and magic that a, a performance should have, even though all the magician's tricks had been revealed. So, um, before we take your questions, let me just quickly touch on a couple of technical things. Um, let me tell you what's on the on your tables first. There are two handouts. One of them, for those of you who don't really have equipment or you're looking at buying some equipment, uh, the, the handout talks about some of the fundamental, you know, things that, that you need. Two most important things are a recorder. A lot of people are using uh, mini discs. They start at about 150 bucks. Uh, and, you know, they're a good way to get started. Uh, and then the other, the, the other most important piece of equipment is the microphone, and there's a suggestion for a bunch of them there. Um, and then obviously we, you really should go into an interview wearing headphones. I mean, those are just, and, and practice with your equipment, wear headphones. Um, and the one message uh, that I would want to get across is to get the microphone as close as you can to the person. I mean, having it on a table sort of across the way is not, is not good enough. Um, on the other hand, you don't want the microphone sort of right at them like that because, A, it looks like they're, you know, they feel like they're looking at the barrel of a gun, and you're also going to get a lot of plosives, a lot of the pee popping, which uh, just sort of overwhelms the microphone and, and sounds really awful. Um, what you basically want to do is get the microphone. I like having the microphone sort of down and to the side like this. And one thing it allows you to do is to establish eye contact with the person that you're talking to. And, you know, once, once you lock onto their eyes, they kind of lock back onto your eyes. And what happens is that even though it's right here, less than a foot away from them, the microphone and all the other technical stuff slowly disappears. So that's a, you know... And the other thing it does is that they're not talking right into it in a way that will give um, those plosives or pee-popping sounds. And, I mean, it's just really important to have the voice of the people that you're talking to come through very clearly on the radio or whatever you're putting together. And there's a scientific and an unscientific reason for why high quality uh, is important. The scientific one is I remember when I first came to NPR, we were told, you know, go out of your way to send people into a, into a studio where they can talk to us via satellite. Avoid the phone, you know, at all costs. And, and there are studies that show that, you know, listeners tune out uh, when they listen to stuff that's on the phone or just doesn't sound good at all, um, whereas they stay, you know, with you if the thing uh, has, has good quality. The, the unscientific reason is that in hopefully in all the examples that you've heard today, not only here but in the other sessions, you communicate with the words you say but also with your voice, the emotion of your voice. 
you know, if your voice, if you're, if you're, if you're tense, your voice is telling you that no matter what the words are saying. If you're happy, vice versa, you know, whatever. Uh, the voice itself communicates just as much, if not more, as the words themselves. And you're going to miss that if you're not recording stuff at high quality. Um, and just to make the proximity point, um, we're going to play you just a brief interview that uh, we did. We worked for an organization called the Folk Life Center, Western Folklife Center, which had been um, a hotel, pioneer hotel, during the old days of the Transcontinental Railroad. It's an old, great building. The railroad used to go right in front of it. And um, when we were trying to do this piece uh, so that visitors to the center could uh, find out a bit about its history, we discovered that one of the bartenders, this old grizzled guy there from the, who was bartending there in the 40s and 50s was still alive, so we went and visited him. And he told us the story of a fist fight that he got into. So you can hear the story, first recorded, you know, pretty much the way it should have been with the microphone closed, and then we're just going to play you little segments of what, what happens as you get the microphone further away and how much you lose when you do that. So here's the story. So a guy loud one up. He says, you don't like to drink whiskey with us. All you want to do is ride that goddamn horse. He says, it's going off on your, on your horses all the goddamn time. I said, I don't drink. I said, that's it. You know, I'm on the way. I don't want to drink. And he kept pestering me. <laughs> so I said, okay, come on. Give us, a, give us a double shot. I said, get here another one. Yeah. Okay, now, so you've been bugging me now, I says, for, for a month or two and stuff like that. So as you drink that, I says, let's go out in the street. Man, we went round and round and round. I had about $60 in American money. Then we got to wrestling. Let's go down the street and this goddamn money was rolling in the pocket and a bunch of goddamn wine was picking her. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> a dirty bastard. So I get this guy... And I really got it. I gave him this and I came with this. And he went down. So he's another little smart little guy. He says, let him up. Let him up. He says, I said, you're the referee? He says, no. Well, I said, since you're the referee and you butted in, I said, I got to stay warm. I said, I can't afford to cool down now. I said, the guy's going to be alone if he gets up. So I said, I'm going to give you a little lesson too. And I hit him, put him right on top of the other. Yes, I did. <laughs> I says, goodbye. <laughs> So that's with the mic about this far away. If you had the mic about this far away, a foot and a half to two feet, this is what it would sound like. So a guy loud money, he says, you don't like to drink whiskey with us. three feet away. So a guy loud money, he says, you don't like to drink whiskey with us. If you were like across the table or something like that. So a guy loud money, he says, you don't like to drink whiskey with us. So it makes some people uncomfortable. But uh, you've at least got to get them, even if you're not really close to the person, having the mic uh, either on a fish pole or, you know, just sort of sitting in such a way that you can get it within a foot of their mouth uh, makes all the difference in the world. So we've got a few minutes left, and we can answer any questions you If you have. could step to the microphone, they're oh, yeah, trying they to record, record this. It, so. Deal, so. Yeah. If you have questions, comments? Um. Asking about uh, the mic placement, I just did an interview with someone um, who I put the microphone, you know, about here, and the guy gave me this really weird look, and he said, does it have to be that close? And I said, you'll sound a lot better if it's that close. And he, he's, he looked really uncomfortable. He got lot, a lot more uncomfortable. So I tried to go a little bit further back, but there was a room with, just, it was a room with bad sound. 
and I had to be closer to try to get rid of the background tone. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do. It made him more uncomfortable, and I could tell through the interview that he wasn't comfortable having this thing stuck in his face. And I tried opening questions and, you know, that didn't have anything to do with the, the real topic. And, and as soon as I asked a question like that, he was like, let's get to the interview. And I, I just didn't know what to do. What do you do with a, a person like that that's really uncomfortable being interviewed? Well, it sounds like you tried probably what I would do, and that is to start the conversation and, and, you know, get it going. And even, you know, if he, what I might have done is, okay, he obviously wanted to get to the interview. Okay, get to the interview and ask those questions. But then as, you know, he, as he warmed up, which, you know, hopefully he would have done, I would have maybe come back and re-asked some of those questions afterward, yeah. maybe yep. in a slightly different way. The other thing is, I, I hate to just put a cold piece of steel up to someone. I, I really believe that using this, or, or even Sometimes better, is that this. rat, is that, you know, oh, that's furry, you know, it, it just <laughs> seems a lot easier to deal with than cold steel, the barrel of a gun. Thanks. But it's t it can be tough. So um, I wanted to ask a question. This is not an ideal interviewing situation, but um, I produce audio tours and sometimes we have to interview people over the phone with the engineer there recording the interviewee's end of the phone call. So it's not like recording the signal over the phone, but the interviewer is a phone call away. You cannot see the person you're talking to. Right. Do you have any tips for getting good tape when you have never met the person perhaps? That's, you know, for, that's called a tape sync, and a lot of times we have to do those too. Where someone's in another city, you're recording both sides of the conversation, and you don't have eye-to-eye -eye contact. And what I do in those cases is I try to have some informal time to talk before uh, I get into the meat of the things. I, I try to schedule enough time with the engineers so there's just not this really rush to just get the pertinent question answered. And I'll talk with someone for a while, get to know them a little bit on the phone. And it's, um, it's got to be your voice that really brings people into, um, into comfort. And, you know, that's something that I've, I probably work on more than anything, is trying to get people comfortable with me and uh, so, so they will trust me and be, be able to work with me. Can I ask one more really quick question? Yeah, quick question. Um, do you always go out as a team? So one of you is the interviewer and one is the engineer. And does that disturb the relationship that you, the interviewer, have with your subject? Uh, for a long time, I did all my recording myself. And, uh, and I was worried about that when Taki and I got together and started working together. But uh, Taki has a way of actually disarming people in a very interesting way, too, that's different than the way I work. We, uh, we do both, but mostly we work together. And this last year, we made a documentary film and brought a third person as cameraman in. And I ended up talking to sound. We had a cameraman, and I I'd sort of directed. And I was very nervous about that. And luckily, we got a cameraman that could really blend well, too. But it really does change the dynamic. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it does sound different. I mean, I know that if I would have been that truck truck with um, the trucker going to the brothel, it would have been a very different interview if there would have been three of us. Well, I was wondering if there were. That was just, yeah, that was just him. Thank you. You're welcome. Sure. Um, I was just wondering if uh, you guys ever use a shotgun because that affords you so much more distance 
but then it makes it a little bit more difficult to record the interviewer or, I mean, if he's holding the mic. I don't know. Do you, is that part well, of your actually, arsenal? Actually, this is a um, cardioid mic, which means basically different microphones have different patterns. Um, most microphones, uh, an omnidirectional microphone would, would be recording sound that's not only in front of it, but to the side and even behind it, okay? This is a microphone it's, which is called directional. It's, an, it's a... Um, cardioid and basically the pattern that it records is something like that okay what Gwen is referring to is a shotgun microphone which actually gathers sound that's sort of in, in the shape of a funnel just so that we all know what we're talking about um, we have used we use shotguns actually quite a bit although this is sort of our default microphone a lot of shotgun mics um, you can be a bit further away but I to my ear, the quality of the voice isn't quite as rich with a shotgun mic. Most that I've heard are a bit thinner sounding than the Omni uh, or the Cardioid. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't stay away from them. And actually, there are a couple, I think, on that list that are shotguns. Okay. Yeah. And in video work, we use a shotgun more, obviously, because we, have a, we put it right on top of the camera. Right. But then we do a lot of remote mic work and stuff like that, too. Hi there. Hi. This is something that I just encountered last week. I'd never run across it before, but I just wondered if you had a perspective. How do you interview somebody while they're moving? The particular thing was this was a runner, and we wanted her while she was running. We're getting more and more proposals from people who really, really want to be doing their thing while they're doing their piece, and I think it makes for really, really great radio, but, you know, how do you mic that? Hockey is the expert on, on extreme recording. We've done some extreme. <laughs> we've mic'd uh, skiers coming down uh, the side of a mountain, kayakers actually going down the river. We've um, developed something which works pretty well in that circumstance, um, and it involves a lavalier mic. I mean, these are basically situations where you can't be right there. Is that, that's what you're saying. Yeah. You can't be right next to them, micing them like not this. Not while somebody's running a marathon. I'm not yeah. going to be right there. Well, actually, <laughs> this is something that, that, we, that we put on a runner. What, what this is, I know it looks like a dead mouse or something <laughs> like that, is there is a lavalier. A lavalier microphone is, um, God, it's like the size of, you know, the end of your finger, okay? And television people use it, and they usually clip them here. And when you're recording something like someone running, you've got to deal with uh, the conditions outside the wind. So this basically is a large hair curler inside with a hair curler is like a cage, the lavalier microphone is sort of suspended in there with two like little rubber bands that you know you make ponytails out of hair ties. Yeah. Then this this is a um, windscreen made by a company called Ryko. They're about forty bucks. They have Velcro. They can sort of clamp onto air, any microphone you want, uh, even even one of these. But I sort of put them around this little casing. And we use. I've done it two ways. One way is have this basically strapped to their chest. One thing about lavalier microphones is that the voice quality is sort of thin, but if you actually put it right on their chest, some of it from their speaking, it, it adds a lot of low end to it. And then I'd have it go into this mini disc recorder, which was also strapped onto them, sometimes in a pouch, you know, if they didn't have a pocket, stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, the expensive part is the microphone and the, and the, and the thing, but you can make a a cage that will really, I mean, the sound that you get from a setup like this is great. If you have more money, you could also do wireless microphones, which we've also done, but then you start having 
RF issues and interference and someone's CB will go on, you know, in a car going by and mess you up. So we, we found that this works. But he recorded bobsleds and skaters and everything at the Olympics, and it really went over nicely. I'll come yeah. back to you for kayak lessons. <laughs> you know, we sometimes we lose the mini disc. We've tried both DAP machines, and they're more reliable. And sometimes a mini disc will just quit on you. Sometimes we do a double system, so we we'll have a remote mic. And uh, we did a piece on Zuni running and. I think we did it two or three different ways and just did the best we could. Right. It's not fail-safe. Hi. Earlier you talked about exploitation, and I have to be careful with your interviewees that they won't trust you. So I've often, um, I'm in a situation where I'm explaining to my interviewer what the interview will be about. Maybe it'll be a few days later. And then they, I'm, what I'm asking is, how do you know? how much to tell them so your interview is still juicy. And sometimes they'll start talking and you'll be like, no, 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 wait, hold on. <laughs> like, I don't want to hear that now. I want to later on. So how, how do you kind of set up an well, interview? You know, one time I talked a little bit about the tension between the search and research because that can happen. Somebody already tells you the story and then it sort of doesn't have the same life the next time that you ask, you know, you ask them about it. So that's one thing. You know, be careful about how much you ask. The other thing that you really have to get comfortable with is it's your story. It's, you know, they, that's pretty important that you're the one that's producing this story. Or, or get clear at least what it is. If it's not your story, if it's our story, you know, you can bring them in any way you want. But I've, you know, we don't have time generally to make a story with people. We make a story and we do fact checking with them. We don't. They don't look at our script. They don't. But they do, we do check on facts because that's the one thing that we guarantee people when we go visit them is that we, we will be factual. We won't screw that up. And usually that's, you know, that's okay with most people. And I'm, I'm sure that might be different with other people. And in doing, you know, dozens of pieces, the people we work with really like our stories. We've only had one, one time when someone didn't like our stories, story, and that was... And I shared, overshared with that person, I think, what we were doing. I don't think you need to tell them all that much ahead of time. I think what Hal is referring to is sort of more what you do with the tape that you get afterward. I mean, technology and editing is such now that you can make someone say almost anything, you know, once you get it back into your, you know, uh, workstation or whatever. But the point is to be true to what they meant when they were, what was important to them you know, what they were really telling you both between the lines and verbally, you know, to be true to that and not try and just take the most extreme little thing, which, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes the, sometimes it's, it's uh, a struggle because you're, you know, you want to use the best tape, but, you know, there's a little tape that you'd like to use, but is that really what the whole, is that really in the big picture way what the conversation was about? And you need to use your judgment there. I guess another part of my question is more, if they do talk about something that's not on tape, is it okay to later on just be like, could you just say all of that again? <laughs> or like, or is it better to cut them off and say that and try to bring that back later? Does that make question make sense? Yeah. What, to ask them? If I mean, like, like sure. sometimes when I'm setting up an interview, maybe I'll be talking to someone and we're going to talk in like two days and we're setting up right. a time. And in the conversation about it, they'll start talking about everything. Oh. And so... 
I've heard people say, oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to talk about that. You know, Just save it. Yeah. Save it. Save it. <laughs> because it's often not the same the second time around. The exactly. That's is, what I'm, yeah. The other thing a good interviewer knows how to do is really think of lots of different ways to approach, approach it, the same question so it doesn't seem like the same question. Sometimes you just, you know, it, some people are really good at that, but that's a real good exercise is to think of different ways to ask a question so it doesn't seem like the same question. Okay. One other thing, do you ever use lapel mics? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what a lot of people are. Oh, that's yeah. the that's same what, idea. That, that's what's Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Um, I have an interview question and a technical question. On the interview side, do you have any favorite questions that you ask? Um, well, I mentioned Scott's, which is Scott Carrier's, mm -hmm. which is, uh, and I've never asked that. What are you doing? But, um, um, you know, I, I end up asking lots of dumb questions. As, I mean, as you could hear from that, you know, how big is your rig? I mean, <laughs> Lord, I mean, what was I thinking? <laughs> but, uh, no, I don't. I don't have any favorite questions. But I'll tell you what I, 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 I'm a, I love to listen. I mean, if anything, that's my favorite thing to do. And so usually in my interviews, the next question builds from the first question, and, and, and it becomes a conversation rather than a list of questions. And, and that's what makes it really natural, and that's the way things really unfold. So I, just, I, I often start with the mundane, you know, the, like, you know, do you like driving trucks, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, you had a quick technical? Yeah, and on the technical side, I've been told that um, the headphones are very intimidating. And I'm wondering if you've tried any of the smaller um, headphones. I know there are a lot that are very high-end now that will actually block out the sound, but yeah. they're also... I haven't tried them. Uh, one thing that I do um, is when we're talking to someone or when I'm talking to someone, um, I'll only wear one side of the headphones. And the side that is off my ear is kind of the side that, you know, it'll be something, you know, like that or sort of depending on how the thing is. But just sort of, to me, it seems to make a big difference if you have at least one ear that's not exposed. And it also allows you to sort of sometimes, particularly when you're um, uh, interviewing someone or recording an interview where people are moving around, you need to be in the right place as people are moving, okay? And, and when you have two headphones on, you get really disoriented. You know, you don't have the three-dimensionality of, of the space. And I find that having one ear off, particularly when we're moving, and we've done a lot of stuff where we're sort of moving around, allows me to really just sort of pick up the vibes of the, vibes of the conversation and just sort of get to where I need to be. So when, the, when they move or whatever, I'm there. So I would say try just having one. Okay. Of the phones. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, one last question. If there is. If there is. Sure. Um, I just had, well, actually I had a couple, but um, I was wondering, I'm deaf in one ear, and I don't know, this, the headphone thing really intimidates me because I'm so used to having to judge, and I'm used to the way sound. Is that a big issue to wear headphones? Well, it just, you, it, it gives you confidence that you're getting you know, what, what you think you're getting, that you're actually rolling. Uh, I mean, if, it's, if, if in your case, because it is a special case, um, it really makes it hard for you to focus, the least I would do is have headphones, you know, with me and then just do a test. 
before you you know jump into it and then listen back to make sure okay I did record that it sounds good the levels are okay and then if you need to remove it then remove it can I just add one thing to that you know for me um, the ma some of the magic is not is being able to leave my reality of being there and have that electronic thing bouncing back at my ear and and that's sort of like where the magic is. is it, 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 it's not reality anymore, it's radio. And, mm -hmm. and that's, um, I think, an important way to listen to yourself interview or listen to yourself record things. So, I, you know, I don't think you always have to have the headphones, but have them around your neck and at least refer to them. Okay. Um, I was wondering about, like, if people are sharing really deep stuff, it... Do you do anonymity for them or just don't mention them in the, you know, like the guy that that you interviewed, you didn't list his name on the credits or whatever? We used, him, we used his handle, his CB handle, and he was fine with that. I talked, I asked people that. I don't want people to be, you know, feel like they're... Well, there's we a trust that. issue. Sure. We know. talk about it. We're, you know, the, the main thing that really helped me is I'm just really trying to be very clear with people and... And the, the other question I had is, if you can't, if you have old tapes, if you can't clean it up with computers, if, if, if your tapes, original tapes, bad, it's really hard to make it anything but bad. You can improve it. Though, you can improve it somewhat. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it.